Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 1, Chapter 14 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 1, read by Jeff Breitman. Chapter 14 The Pen of God The next day, there was a call from Mull to send a boat. I caught my breath, thinking Brother Leo and the monks were back. I walked briskly to the beach where even the abbot was waiting. The boat returned with the monks, but when we saw their faces... Our smiles disappeared. We could see immediately something was wrong. Now it was time to know the meaning of Derek's letter. A strange monk was with Brother Leo and the others. A visitor. He was an old, gray-haired man with hollow cheeks and dark, heavy brows. Brother Leo helped him out of the boat putting his big arm around him. The abbot extended his hand to the stranger and introduced himself. I am Brother Derek, the master scribe of Lindisfarne, the stranger replied. Something caught my eye. Handed from the boat was a red leather-covered box, bejeweled and bound with silver. It was the gospel I had seen all those years ago that I had ached to emulate and outdo. I had ached for it, and now it was before me. May we address the brethren? asked Derek. We have news, terrible news. We walked up from the beach, the old scribe trudging heavily. We went into the refectory, and the abbot sent to have the bell struck. As monks filed in, the abbot sent out two or three to gather all the monks from their chores around the island. The later the monks arrived, the more alert and curious were their faces, as the word spread of the visiting monk. We stood around the tables, and Brizal led us in prayer, as the monks pulled back their cowls to look up at the visitor, who stared off as if he didn't see us. The abbot said, This is Brother Derek, the master scribe of Lindisfarne. He asked to speak. Derek frowned and bent forward staring at the floor in front of the assembly. His voice was hoarse. Lindisfarne has been met by a horrible calamity. Pagans from across the sea came in great ships, bringing fire and death. Derek stopped for a long pause, his eyes vacant as the shock and fear came back to him. It was a fine day. 
The pastures were green and rich, and the cattle nudged the grass and cropped the sweet clover, not knowing their fate, as we did not know our fate. The sky was clear, yet we heard a strange sound as of thunder. It came from the sea. We looked to each other in wonder, and gradually all came out to look over the waves. A dozen ships, huge and slender as knives, cut the waves, rowed with a bank of oars like a forest. They sang in a strange language to the beat of the oars. We saw the boats turn toward our beach, and then men the size of giants slipped ashore. They seemed ready for battle in helmets and leather armor, they raced up the beach with drawn swords, screaming to their awful gods of battle. We thought it must be some mistake. We, we hardly had time to think. Surely these warriors mistakenly took our holy land as the field of some battle. But were they even men? They seemed to be the very spirits of war, demons. Their eyes glowed, their thick necks strained with their screaming. We raised our arms. Stop! We are monks, men of God, we shouted. We raised our arms in supplication and fell to our knees to show them we would not fight. We held up our crosses and rosaries. Their swords passed through us as if we were grass to be mown down. They used their swords like scythes, and our humble crosses flew in the air to be caught in their laughing grip. I was not in the front. I had time though it was time measured in grains. At first, I ran toward the church, but then I turned. I was going to beseech God there, but suddenly, in a flash of wordless understanding, I knew they were after treasure, that there was treasure in the church that I could not protect. It was men I had to save. The boys... The schoolboys were still in the scriptorium, copying lessons. Their master, a strict man, had not let them rise to see what the noise was. I burst into the room, screaming for them to come with me to hide. By now, the sound of the morrigan was all around, and they knew a battle raged. Ink flew in the air and spattered us as they jumped away from their work. We ran to the barn, where several boys could hide in the threshing pit. The rest of us ran to the milking sheds beyond the fields. There I watched. And after a few minutes, I smelled the smoke. I ran, choking on my own screams, toward the barn. It was engulfed in flame. I didn't give a thought any more to the demons who were carrying off their treasure. I tried to chant, 
and screamed psalms at the flames. There were too many wounded and dying for us to try to put out the blaze, and it burned quickly. I raked and tore at the embers to get at the threshing pit. The boys were below the smoke in that pit and could breathe. Some of them had burns on their backs and arms, and their hair was scorched. But they lived. Praise be to God and Holy Mary. We escaped, and we saved our great holy gospel, which we bring with us for safekeeping here. We ask for your prayers. Tears fell over his mouth and chin. We ask for your comfort and to beg God to deliver us from such evil ever befalling us again. I pray to God it isn't the end of the world. He put his hands over his face and trembled. He took the gospel out of the box and held it over his head. The abbot led us in prayer as we marched to the church and prayed more in a vigorous chant. Our voices were different, strange, louder than usual, and quivering. To honor Brother Derek, the abbot ordered a meal of meat, cheese, herbs, and fresh bread, but no one enjoyed the feast. The sounds of eating, even the sounds of our hand gestures, seemed to echo in a nervous clatter. The abbot read to us, but was dimly heard. Sensing our distraction, Brizal stopped and said, Perhaps you may make an extra confession to your Amkhara today, after the meal. If this was permission to talk, the monks took it fully. The monks gathered in groups of two or three all over the island and asked, What of us? We too have silver and treasure for plunder. There were whispers that we should cast the silver into the sea, and some even suggested we should fashion weapons to defend ourselves against attack. I heard snatches of these conversations. I stayed to myself, and then went into Columbus' tomb to pray in silence. The next morning, after the meal, Brizal stood before us with Derek, and the great gospel that Derek had brought from Lindisfarne. Though we honored our guest with a feast yesterday, now, with such a tragedy that has befallen our brothers, he asks to do penance, and I agree. We rose and followed Brizal and Derek out and marched around the island, stopping at each holy spot to pray. We circled the island three times, and gathered together at the Bay of the Dead. 
Brizal said, Let us remember on this shore where the dead land, those who have been cut down. Let us do penance in faith that God will have mercy. All heads bowed in prayer, except mine, because I glanced upward at the gospel that Brazal held above. I felt a hand on my elbow and turned to meet Gormgal's eyes. I thought I was being rebuked, but Gormgal darted his eyes toward the great gospel, raising his white brows. Brizal led us up the road of the dead to the cemetery, and we chanted among the standing stones until it was time to file into the church and chant more. For our penance, there would be no second meal. We would offer prayers in constant vigil. I prayed in Columba's tomb. With my eyes closed and head bowed, I again felt Gormgal squeeze my arm. Gormgal knelt beside me, his thin face more hollow than ever, his eyes burning. We must do more. We must make a great offering. You know what we must do, he said. I didn't know. I wondered what more I could sacrifice. I felt I had given up everything I possibly could. Gormgal whispered his prayers in a long breath, which had the sharp, sour odor of one who hadn't eaten. All the monks smelled like that now. I rose to go, and Gormgal, still kneeling, grasped my hand. We must do more. We must go to Abbot Brazel. I felt tired, light-headed from lack of food. I didn't want to do more. I kissed Gormgal's hand and left him praying. When I taught the boys, I could see in their faces and hear in their weak voices the pangs of hunger. I went to Brizal and asked to allow the boys to eat. They are growing and require more than we do. They can barely listen over the groans of their stomachs. Brizal frowned, but he agreed. When I told the boys they would eat after Nunnus, they threw their arms around me. Every day we paraded around the island with the great gospel. Afterward, Gormgal locked it in the cabinet. One day, he approached the class as they finished their lesson. Would you like to see the glorious book? he asked us. I would like you to see it. I wondered if hunger had maddened the old man. He had never been so carefree before, 
about anything even half as valuable. Gormgal took out the gospel and opened it on the table, turning the pages to their amazed eyes. Colors danced before us, twining letters spiraling in dense dreaming patterns. I had seen this many years before, the last time Lindisfarne had lent it to Iona. Then it was like a dream, and it was loaned innocently only for humble veneration. Now the book was our precious ward for its protection. It had never seemed so valuable and sacred as now. The boys sighed and exclaimed over page after vivid page, even their hunger forgotten. This was made for St. Cuthbert, Gormgal said, but our dear St. Columba has nothing such as this. His weak voice trembled. The boys quickly responded, bouncing in their chairs, talking at once. We must make one then. How will St. Columba protect us without a great gospel? We owe it to our saint. Gormgal hushed them and put away the book as the bell was struck for tears. As we headed out to the church, Gormgal slid his arm under mine. He was growing too weak to walk steadily. I didn't feel much stronger. I wondered at what Gormgal had said, which had utterly surprised me. But it made sense. We chanted, all our voices weak from the penance. Afterward, Gormgal gestured towards Columba's tomb, and we went inside. A shaft of light came through the doorway, shining on the white stone box that held the saint's relics. Gormgal stroked the lid, which was carved with a cross and doves. We must honor our saint. I swallowed and looked over at the box of scribing tools. I felt ashamed remembering the previous year when I had first arrived, so full of excitement to do it, so full of pride. I don't know, I said. The dark room was humid with our sour breath. I needed fresh air and light. This tomb had been a place I had come to often in despair, and now it felt heavy and cold, and I had no more answers now than I did before. Dearest brother Kanochtoch, I need your strength. We must raise up our saint. You have come from pride to doubt, and now you must come to your simple faith. There is nothing but faith. There is no Kanochtoch. No Gormgor, there is only our work and our offering. 
he fell into my arms, and I held the shaking old man. The feeling I had the day I plowed the field began to swell in me again. Yes, yes, let us go into the light. Clinging to each other, we went outside. It was strange that the day was so fine, the sun so bright and warm, the waving grasses golden in the autumn day. Soon it would be Martinmas again. If there were a gospel to be made, there was much to arrange and hides to prepare. Gormgal straightened up. He, too, seemed refreshed by the glorious day. Let, let me speak with some of the others, I said. Gormgal made the sign of the cross over me and went into the house. I walked to Columba's Bay, where many of the monks had been building their piles of stone. A stone for each sin. Marcus and Reuben were there among them. Reuben was crouched on the stones, sifting through them with a distracted, vacant look, while Marcus threw stones onto his pile angrily. I tapped Marcus on the shoulder and motioned to Reuben, and the three of us walked a little way up the hill from the pebble beach. Brother Gormgal thinks we should create a great new gospel for St. Columba. I feel awkward suggesting it, I told them. Marcus rubbed his dirty hands together. I have always wanted to. Reuben glanced sideways at him. This is a sacred undertaking. And a great burden. It would be a glorious offering, Marcus said. I think now is the time to take this action. Reuben looked from me to Marcus. Can the monastery afford to take this on? What will Abbot Brizal think? There is only one question, Marcus said. Are we ready? He put his hands on each of our shoulders. I say, we are ready. We climbed over the hill and down the road to the abbot's house. On the way, we stopped at the house, where I gestured for Gormgal to follow. At the abbot's house, Jeremiah answered our knock with a quizzical air. The visiting monk Derek was with the abbot sitting on a low stool, his head bowed in contemplation. When we entered, he stood and bowed to us. The abbot also stood. When we kneeled, he motioned for us to rise. Gormgal spoke first, his hand squeezing mine. Dear father, we have been discussing our penance and our offerings to Columba. And we wondered, humbly, 
if it would be in order to create a new gospel along the lines of the glorious book Brother Derek has brought. We would copy from it and use it as a model. Jeremiah, standing next to the abbot's desk, cocked his head and furrowed his brow. This would be a great undertaking, he said doubtfully. Before the abbot could reply, Derek pounded his fist into the palm of his hand. Yes, yes, this is the effort we need. His voice boomed surprisingly, in contrast to our quiet, weak voices. Brazal smiled at Derek and looked at us, his eyes glittering from the fast. I think, perhaps, this is an appropriate offering. Creating a new gospel to offer to God would be a great gift of faith. Marcus said, I think Brother Konochtoch should lead us. I bowed my head. I have the least seniority. It is more burden than honor, and would be a great penance for you, Reuben said. You must do it, said Derek in his strange echoing voice. It was a queer feeling, after all, for this to be coming true, now that I had given it up, and under such circumstances, the terrible context, to do this as penance for the nightmare raid on our brother monks, made me unsure of how to proceed. I couldn't take pleasure in it, but it was a sacred duty, and, perhaps, that was the only true justification for this effort. Not my pride or pleasure, but only sacred duty. Of course, if you ask this of me, I consider it an honor and a blessing to be asked, I said. The abbot took his wax tablet to write notes on. First, we must account for materials. How many hides will it take? At least a hundred and fifty, Marcus said. Reuben nodded. We must send an envoy to the high chief at Dunard to tell him our plan and ask for hides from all over the land of the Dalriata. We have no time to lose, then, to get this donation arranged before the autumn slaughter, Brezal said. We must send men of rank to show our respect. I think Gormgar should go. His enthusiasm will sway the chief to our need. Let me go as well, Reuben said. Gormgal is very old. I am not so frail, Gormgal said, his strained voice a croak. Very well, and a boy to serve you. Kayla, I said. 
I felt that curious Kayla would enjoy traveling such a distance. Bresal nodded. Go over your store of inks and paints and determine what we need. Now that Brother Leo has returned, you don't need to teach. Gormgal slid to his knees. Thank you, sweet father, for blessing this labor. The abbot stepped around his desk and gave Gormgal his hand to kiss. We all went down on our knees and kissed his hand as well. When it was my turn, the abbot patted the top of my head with tenderness. Before Vespers, I took a coracle and rode to the other island. I hadn't been there since July. The rocky shore glowed in the late afternoon light as I landed. I paused at the top of the hill above the green. The children were holding hands in a circle, singing. Emer was in the center, rushing at their arms in a game. She saw me first and darted out between their legs to run up the hill. I came down, being pulled along. Edith took the lead in quieting the group, lining them up to bow to me. Emer's hands were in little fists as she swayed in excitement. Where have you been, Uncle Tach? Edith tried to shush her, saying, He has important things to do. Emer held her breath, her cheeks puffing out, her eyes big upon me. I knelt before her. I've missed you. She threw her arms around my neck, and I held her. I was afraid she was crying, but she only breathed hard in my ear. He's had to teach on Fridays, Marcus explained, Edith said. Do you need your book back? I let go of Emer. Edith looked at me with a pained expression, though trying to look brave. Her red hair blew in the wind, and I thought of Deirdre, of the cost of not saying goodbye, though now I was not so far away. She twisted her hands and said, I could go in and get it for you. But I knew in her face she didn't want to give it up. You may keep it. If you take very good care of it, her face relaxed, and she beamed at me. Morgan had come out by then and stood with her arms folded. We're glad to see you, she said, but I have a feeling this isn't marking a return. I stood up, surrounded by the children. I wanted to be able to talk to Morgan alone. I didn't know if she knew of the raid. Perhaps Marcus had told her. As the women's island held no treasure, I thought they were safe if the raiders came here. The raiders would seek the church and its silver. Morgan's face was set 
as if she already knew what I had come for. We're going to create a new gospel. I will be very busy. Morgan nodded. Edith grasped my hand, laughing in wonder. Will we be able to see it? I didn't know. But, I said, someday you will be doing holy work. Yes. So, I have come to say goodbye. She stood back and put her arm around Emer, taking Morgan's hand with the other. Her face was serious, and she nodded slowly. I looked at Morgan, longing to say more, longing, perhaps, to hold her. Her expression was the same as I first met her, firm, her mouth set. She looked as if none of this was a surprise, and I would never know how she felt. Goodbye, Brother Kanochtach. She started to walk away with Edith and Emer. I stared after them, hoping she would turn around. She turned. For a moment, she paused, gazing at me, her face full of soft warmth in the setting sun. Then they were gone. The next day, after Prime, I walked across the causeway of the pond to the west pasture where the calves trotted by their mothers. I stood by the fence and counted them, and looked them over. Reuben joined me. Are you pleased? Reuben asked. Not that our brothers were slaughtered. Of course. Reuben leaned against the rail, weakened by his penance. Yes. It is done out of tragedy. We can only hope it will bless the work all the more. We must fill it with our love rather than our grief, I said, putting my arm around him. Yes, that is the story I wanted to tell you, Kayla. My confession. A calf springing over the grass bounded up to us. I recalled your lovely words on the boat on our way to Iona. I scratched the calf behind the ear and stroked his white and brown head and said into his big brown eyes, The pen of God will be written on your skin and you will live forever. To be continued. If you enjoy Continuous Stream, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit 
www.continuousdream.com. Thanks for listening.